This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not an offer or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. SNN Network, SNN Inc., and the Planet Microcap Podcast and the representatives are not licensed brokers, broker dealers, market makers, investment bankers, investment advisors, analysts, or underwriters. We do not recommend any companies discussed. We may buy and sell securities in any company mentioned and may profit in the event those securities rise in value. We recommend you consult with a professional investment advisor, broker, or legal counsel before purchasing or selling any securities referenced in this podcast. This is Robert Kraft, and I'm your host for the Investors Roundtable. This is episode six, and uh, this is an early morning recording because we have a, a truly global audience. We got we got individuals from all over the place, and uh, actually a few people here that I haven't. This is my first time meeting, so this is uh, this is going to be a lot of fun. And uh, I'd like to introduce everyone who's joining us for this panel. We got Matthew Peterson from Peterson Capital Management. Uh, we actually did an interview on the podcast uh, a few episodes ago, so I invite everybody to go check that one out. Uh, we got Jeremy Deal from JDP Capital Management. By the way, I should have said everybody give like a, you know, like that, that's me. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> that's me, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I'm present, present. <laughs> and then uh, we got Sean Knoll from Fortress Investment Group. Sean, thank you for joining us. Just do like the yeah okay, and then <laughs> and then uh, we also got Jeff Hendrickson from Thorpe Abbott's Capital. Jeff, thank you, thank you, Jeremy, thank you, Matthew, and uh, let's get after it this morning, dudes. It's uh it's early here on the West Coast, a little six thirty action. So I appreciate you, you know everyone getting me up and at them. Yeah, it's kind of unfair for me because I had about six cups of coffee today, and it's three thirty p.m. or something. So I I feel like the the one that's the most advantaged. Well, so that's, maybe that means you're talking. That means you're talking the most. All right. Okay. That's okay. that's what's happening. <laughs> all right. So I, real quick, before we get into some topics and everything like that, Jeff, Jeremy, Sean, this is your the first time I'm even you know. Well, uh, Jeremy, we spoke before, but like yeah. it's first time hearing uh, and meeting you and doing a, an interview or anything like that. You know, very quick. Let's get like kind of a one liner, couple lines on uh, your investing philosophy and and, and your background. Um, let's start, let's go, let's go counterclockwise. So I'll go, uh, let's start with Jeff and then we'll, we'll go to Jeremy and then to Sean. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, yeah, Jeff Hendrickson, uh, based out of Charlottesville, Virginia, uh, run a firm, Thorpe Abbott's Capital. Um, we are a, uh, a very value oriented, uh, uh, investment operation, uh, that's focused on behavioral economics, uh, behavioral finance. And our focus is really on understanding and finding uh, mispricing and market inefficiencies and trying to really understand um, the psychology, the psychology and the behavioral elements to create mispricing and then, then take advantage of it. And my background, I've uh, been doing this, well, Thorpe Abbott's, we launched this fund uh, in November, but uh, um, I've been uh, investing full-time professionally really since 2008. And um, yeah, that's, that's my background. I'm also um, a fellow at the University of Oxford and uh, I teach there a couple times a year, um, valuation and uh, financial modeling. Awesome. Hey, that's a good time to start 2008, right? You're, you're, yeah, a, you're a born contrarian. Let's go. Right. Absolutely. <laughs> and Jeremy, uh, let's go to you. Yeah. So um, I launched JDP Capital in 2011. Part of that, I was in private equity. And part of that, I, I worked for Honeywell. Um, and I moved to Amsterdam about three years ago. Um, very little to do with business, more of a lifestyle choice. Um, and uh my girlfriend and I are expecting our first child in December. So we're super excited about that. Um, yeah, so JDP is a concentrated value firm. Um, we generally have between 
you know, five and eight high conviction positions that uh, companies we think can survive and thrive for very long periods of time to try to outperform the market with individual companies that can grow faster than our benchmark, which is the S&P 500. So companies that can have the opportunity to reinvest 100% of their gross margin back into the business at very, very high rates of return that we don't have to trade um, and we can have a five or 10 year view on. We also have a special situations overlay, which uh, used to be a lot bigger part of the, of the strategy and now it's a maximum of 10% allocation and those are distressed. Um, super price dislocators, maybe we call it like maybe deep value where there's a mean reversion kind of idea um, and uh, limited to 10% of the portfolio because it's because um, uh, you have to trade them and they're just they're just harder things to own. But um, the core of the portfolio is a handful of companies that we don't have to sell for a long period of time. Um, they're growing faster than the broader market in a sustainable way. Nice. I mean, since moving to Amsterdam, which is, by the way, congratulations. Expecting your first yeah. That's so yeah, awesome. Yeah, daughter, daughter. Yeah, there we go. Yeah. Join the Girl Dad Club. Let's yeah, go. Yeah, that's right, that's right. There you go. The world needs more, more female board members. So here we go. That We're is, making something. There it is. That, yeah. That's, that's for damn sure. Um, but real quick, I mean, since moving to Amsterdam, I mean, I know we talked offline how, you know, you still yeah. invest in U.S. equities, you know. you Yeah, have, mostly U.S. Yeah. Exactly. So, I mean, have you started looking abroad as well at global assets too to, to bring into the portfolio just because now yes. you have this more exposure to Europe? Yeah, absolutely. So personally, I've invested um, in, a, in a machine learning um, fintech um, here based here. And um, that's been a really interesting experience, but not necessarily for the fund. But that's opened up relationships with other investors um, in, in the sector and just, just broader speaking and have, and have been, become more interested in, in mostly kind of Dutch businesses. Uh, there's a lot of great growth companies here. There's a lot of great old economy businesses as well. Um, so I've also woken up to how different each country, the business in each country is. So when you're in Austria, uh, for example, the majority of the companies are the highest quality companies like Red Bull, which is, you know, probably one of the, maybe the largest company in Austria. Most of them are private, same in Germany. Uh, but in companies like Holland, you have a lot more publicly traded uh, large businesses. So each country really different uh, as far as the public and versus private. Um, but I have not, I mean, outside of Spotify, which is one of our largest holdings, um, not necessarily invested for the fund in Europe, but I would be open to it, um, actively looking um, all the time. And um, it's, it's definitely opened my horizons to what's, what's out there. It's a big world. Yeah, making that bet on podcast networks. Let's go. All right. I like that. I like that. So, uh, <laughs> so uh, I would like to now throw it to Sean, uh, you know, quick blurb, your background, investing strategy. Yeah, my name's Sean. I manage family office for one of the founders of Fortress Investment, uh, Fortress Investment Group. So I don't work directly for Fortress. Before that, I managed a hedge fund that I started uh, for a number of years. And then before that, I managed a different family office, English family office. Here we have broad investment mandate. And I think my primary focus is just on owning great businesses and trying to own them for long periods of time. One, because I don't want to pay any taxes and two, because I think that's the best way to generate a lot of returns. And so really searching for the best businesses in the world and I want to own them in size and I want to hopefully if they continue to perform only for long periods of time. Uh, but ultimately we have a broad investment mandate here. And I think probably our two biggest competitive strengths are that we can take a long duration for non-institutional uh, investing. And we also have very 
high level of flexibility given the nature of the capital base. So I think when we can leverage those some strengths, those are those are a big competitive edge. Uh, but yeah, happy to be here. Thanks for the invitation. No, absolutely, Sean. Very cool. And uh, and Matthew for shits and giggles. I mean, you know, I know we can direct everybody yeah, to for any, one for anybody who didn't. <laughs> Watch the last podcast. That's right. Uh, so, so Matthew Peterson, I run Peterson Capital Management, uh, which uh, similar to these other funds, it's a long-term value-based fund. Uh, we launched, actually, Jeremy and I launched our funds on the same day in 2011. Uh, so uh, prior to, you know, the fund is uh, long-term concentrated value. We sort of look at things in two avenues. There's sort of the Graham Graham, the Ben Graham, you know, uh, not necessarily net nets, but the deep value opportunities um, that aren't necessarily compounding, but can mean revert. And then there are uh, the more Phil Fisher style investments, which I actually prefer uh, because those are the long-term compounders that we can hold literally uh, for a decade or longer. And, uh, you know, I've been investing professionally for, uh, for over two decades. Uh, so this is kind of the third major financial crisis uh, that, that I've been investing through. And I think it's amazing. All, there's a lot of similarities and there's a few differences and um, it's actually an incredible time to putting money to work. Sorry, we just had another earthquake here. That was crazy. We were woken wow. up to one this morning. Oh, wow, that's Jeez. Holy crap. Wow, wow, wow. That's okay. a first. That's a first well, on the podcast. podcast. Yeah, no, there that's we not go. a six, that's a first. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, out of six, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Well, well, we're all, okay. We're all good. Yeah, no, everything's hey, Yeah, no, nothing. No, hey, nothing's full. We got a shelf right here. I don't, I don't see I guess, cracks but. in the wall behind you, so that's a good sign. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, this isn't this isn't the big one yet. That whole thing. Okay. But anyways, but anyways, wow. So if anybody watching, look, uh, LA is a great place to live. We get earthquakes. We get, you know, I think that tsunamis every once in a while. But uh, yeah, I heard California is a really low tax rate too. Oh, the lowest, <laughs> the lowest, right? I think. By, by the way, I, I, I should mention. I should mention we uh, we just we just joined this migration out to Austin, Texas. So I was recently in LA, where Robert is, and uh, we just came out to Austin. It's been wonderful here. We've got a lot more space. Uh, it's, it's it's been very nice. And so, Jeremy, you're over in Amsterdam. Uh, Sean, uh, San Francisco, right? And then uh, and then Virginia here for for Jeff. Yeah. So. Kind of yeah. yeah, I mean, we were talking, we were all talking offline. We were just like, you know, because Jeremy kind of was one of the first to make that, you know what, I'm going to Europe. You know, I'm, I want to check this out. I want to look at the land. I know this isn't necessarily an investing conversation, but it actually could be yeah, from an economic, yeah. you know, because at the end of the day, like, I think quarantine has caused us all to really think about like, okay, where do I want to spend, you know, actually, I was thinking about this yesterday. It's not so much like, okay, if I had to be in a quarantine again, where would I want to spend my time? It's like, okay, when I'm not in quarantine, what are the things I like to do? You know, yeah. and really, and really thinking yeah. hard about that. Like, what are right. like the minimum things I'm like, damn, I really miss these things. Where else yeah. could I do that? You know, if I don't necessarily like the area that I'm living in right now, you know, what do you guys, screw it, what are you guys thinking about that? I think it's awesome. I, you know, yeah. my business partner, Robert, was saying the other day, he lives in uh, Chapel Hill. He was saying, he was thinking about it. Uh, he was like, you know, there's no need. He's like, I mean, now that schools are all canceled, we're homeschooling. He's like, I, I wish we lived on a lake. He's like, I'm living in, in Chapel Hill in town. He's like, I lived on a lake, have a boat. And I mean, he was kind of, I think, you know, kidding around, but, but half, halfway, probably not. Like, I think it's gotten uh, to the point where a lot of people are thinking about uh, where can I live to maximize uh, happiness, if you will, and, and, and then still obviously be able to deliver uh, on the job front. 
Yeah. I'd, I'd expect we see some downward pressure on real estate prices in major cities because uh, I think people are just sort of um, they're they're happy to have a little more space now and and you know if you can work remote which is the key aspect you don't necessarily need to be next to your office um, you can get a longer commute time but you don't actually have to do the commute so right. I would expect to see a little bit of uh, some downward pressure on real estate prices inside the cities and then maybe um, maybe prices go up a little bit uh, outside the cities. And I think what we're seeing too is so many people move to the cities for the wrong reason, or they live in a place because the company's based there. It's not because right. that was their natural kind of like, I want to live there anyway. And it's, it's now kind of unleashing that I've got four or five friends that are moving, have moved or in the process of moving, whether it's from Seattle or from San Francisco or from Manhattan, that are moving to kind of random places. Well, not random, but places that were, are important to them, places that they look up and say, this is where I want to spend my time. Right. Um, and I even have a friend who's, whose girlfriend is with Microsoft and they decided, they decided to go to the US Virgin Islands because they, they told, Microsoft apparently said you could work from anywhere, any US territory for the next, I don't know, year or something. So they're going to the US Virgin Islands. Like that's not where I would go, but that's where they wanted to go. And that's what, that's what this is unleashing. So it's really an exciting time if you can work from home, if you have that flexibility, um, because there's no reason to, to, to have to, to, I don't know, if you don't have to live in a city, you shouldn't. You shouldn't. I mean, look at the programs right. in like Bermuda and Barbados going on right now. I mean, like, hey, we'll take it. Uh, yeah, and by the way, Jeremy, to that point. Where like sometimes the things that seem the most stable, like, high quality real estate in big city names are actually very vulnerable. And you're seeing disruption across asset classes and across businesses that I think were previously unimaginable. I know there was a lot of real estate in San Francisco Bay area traded at one, two, 3% cap rates. Yep. Yep. It's now it's going to get devastated from an investment perspective. I, I saw somewhere the other day that rents in San Francisco were down 12% in a month, right? If you lever that 10 wow. times, Right. And, you, you know, you can't sell your property. I was reading this interesting stat a while back that was done in London at one point where they, they thought that a 1% change in demand for real estate had a 10% impact on the prices. Yep. Yeah. You know, I think there's a lot of things that are happening right now that are really unprecedented. And do you think that's sustainable? Like if we come out of the other side of this in two years, are people going to want to uh, be in other places? Or do you think there's... There's an interesting article in the Wall Street Journal the other day talking about this. I think it was in the journal. Um, but basically the, the gist of it was the argument uh, was that after everything kind of normalizes that you're going to see demand come back to New York, San Francisco, to all the major, you know, London, major population hubs. So do you guys see that happening or maybe not to that, that kind of mean reversion, if you will, maybe won't happen this time? I mean, we'll have, we'll I mean, have population growth. We'll have eventually wage growth again. So it's not like real estate will be down forever. But, uh, but certainly I think that this is, if there's any lasting impact, it's that people might actually relocate. And right. that relocation will have at the margin an impact on real estate prices, you know, inside metropolitan areas and I mean, rural areas. Yeah, it, the exodus was happening before even uh, to a degree. Sorry, I mean, sorry, Jeremy. Yeah, so, so I was maybe like, if you're 25 years old and you're getting your first job and it's, you know, you want to be, a, it's a Google or something, you, you know, part of the experience is being around other people your age and climbing the ladder and having to go into the, the, cap, the employee cafeteria and all that. But, but for people that are hit a certain age or they want to have a family or whatever, like that grind just isn't as important. So 
I, right. I kind of see like there, there is a value in having an incredible campus, being able to hop around between major cities if you work for, for a big company. Um, there is a drive and, and, and a growth that comes from being around and in close proximity of other people, but it's not for everybody and it's not for all parts of all stages of life. And then again, maybe when, mm -hmm. when you're an empty nester and you're in your 60s and 70s, maybe you want that interaction again to feel younger. Maybe you want to move back to the city, but, but, but the, what's changing is you don't have to. Maybe, maybe you have more flexibility than you had before. And that's what's exciting right. about it. Is, it's just, if, if I want nothing against San Francisco, but if I, if I want to move there, it's because I really want to move there. It's not because I have to for, for you know, to have to get FaceTime with my, with my VP because I want to work in tech or whatever, or New York because I, I want to work for Goldman, so I have to live in Manhattan. And maybe that's, maybe that's one of the biggest shifts is I want, to, I, I want to live there, so I will. But if I don't, I don't. Right. I mean, I think that, I mean, you, oh, I mean, I think, you know, like we, we all are talking from a place of, you know, we, we have that privilege where, you know, all of us can work from home. You know, we can go and, and do what we do anywhere in the world, you know, so we yeah. have that. So, you know, but so really we're speaking to that, that audience that has that flexibility and has that privilege where they can go and do what, what we're doing anywhere that they want, you know, but it, 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 there's always going to be a need to have, you know, not just essential workers, but there's, you know, law firms, account, accounting firms, yeah. you know, these, these, these types of doctors, you know, healthcare workers, you know, they need to be in the, I mean, a lot of healthcare workers, we all know, because we all have doctors as friends, I'm sure that, yeah. uh, hey, they, they don't even get to choose where they get to go to residency, and then they right. end up there for five, 10 years, you know? So I mean, I like I have a good friend who never thought he'd move to Orlando. And now he's been in Orlando for five years. And, uh, you know, it is what it is. But, uh, but he's built a great life for himself. But at the end of the day, my main point being is that, you know, I think, at the same time, while we might be in that area of privilege now, I think it's slowly starting to change in many different businesses, you know, where they have that flexibility so that you can go and move wherever you want. Like my main point of saying before Jeremy said something was that uh, the mass exodus has been happening even before quarantine. I think just quarantine has sped up that thought process of like, hmm, yep. you know, right. either I can do what I do in another place or screw, excuse me, yeah. screw it. I'll just go. <laughs> I try and keep this PG thirteen, right? I, yeah. You know, I, you know, I'll go, I'll go where I want to go, and I'll just get a job there. You know, screw it, I'll figure it out. Right. Well, I think a lot of that has to do with the tech development that was taking place. So prior to COVID, obviously, we could now do video calls, but it wasn't widely accepted. So you still thought you had to go out and shake the hand and uh, do the face to face contact. Now it's just been, uh, now it's just openly available. I mean, people expect my children to run into the middle of the, of the podcast and it's, it's a non-issue. Yep. So, yeah. Yep. But I mean, is that sustainable though? Cause like I had a friend of mine that was saying, you know, I did a meeting with a client, uh, first, first time meeting and the potential client rather, uh, and the person was in Hong Kong and my friend was in London and he was like, normally I would get on a plane and fly to Hong Kong because that's how you win business. But, but with this pandemic, now everybody's used to, just doing a Zoom meeting. And he's like, so I think it's going to permanently change, for instance, business travel. And I think well, there's maybe some truth to that, but then I'm kind of thinking, all right, well, from a game theoretical perspective, let's, 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 let's game this out. So let's say we get to the other side of the pandemic and I'm a competitor with my friend and we're competing after the same client in Hong Kong. And by the way, you can travel again because yeah. the virus is under control. 
And I know that what he's going to do is zoom it because that's kind of what he does. So what's my best response to his move? Well, it's actually to get on a plane and fly to Hong Kong because yeah. it's like, hey, man, he zoomed with you. I'm here face to face. And then now if my friend knows that I'm going to do that, his best response to my best response is to fly as well. So we're back to a point where we're all flying again. So I think there's some chance that that could, that could happen, but you can't know. replace I human agree. connection. Human connection right. is just, it just is what it is. I mean, it's, yeah, you're never going to replace that. And, and yeah, the, the, I mean, like our, every year we meet up um, in Switzerland and it, you know, we, we never, you can't replace that. Uh, yeah. The conversations wow. that we have Prague and, and, and we're in clusters and the, the late nights talking about business and, and talking stocks and talking about life and, you know, in person, you just, we just could never do that. We couldn't have it. Zoom, we'd never be able to have that same that same impact, and and, and the relationships that we all, that we have are because of those relationships that we were able to those bonds that we created in person. So I totally agree that there's got to be a balance, but maybe it's less, right? Maybe it's maybe you see yeah. each other once or twice, and then you, for the rest of the year you don't have to travel as much, or there's some happy medium. But but I, I do feel a little stronger about the live where you want to live. Maybe not for everybody, but you shouldn't have to live. I mean, there should be a little bit more flexibility. I mean, look at my, my, my partner, Lily. You know, she works for a, a big Dutch company, and she rides her bike 40 minutes each way to work. Rain, uh, ice, wind, you know, 7 in the morning. And, and she says that, you know, awesome. most of the day is spent just, just like at the water cooler, having conversations, meetings about meetings. And, and now she's been at home since, since March, and they're able to get just as much or not more done. And it just, she can't even fathom getting on that bike at seven o'clock in the morning in the dark right. and cold. And, you know, it just, it just seems, it just seems kind of irrelevant whether she lives here or lives, you know, in Portugal. She, miss, she misses the bike ride a little bit. Let's be, come on. That, that's, that actually, <laughs> on the nice days, that sounds nice. Yeah. They, 10 <laughs> days a year that it's nice. <laughs> uh. Jeremy, that's interesting. Out of curiosity, uh, you've been traveling a little bit around. What what oh, do yeah. you see? What do you see in terms of the COVID response? Bar, uh, I just got back. Countries? Just got back from Mallorca. Incredible. Restaurants are full. Beaches are full. People are out. It took me an hour to pick up my rental car. People are obviously considerate. Right. You know, one point five meter distance, which is about six feet. Have the mask. But um, went out for a big birthday dinner last night with some friends. Uh, you know. Yeah, just life's back to normal. Like people are not living in fear. I drove all over Austria uh, last month with with uh, Lily's family um, from north to south. Um, yeah, they, I mean, people are being cautious, but I, I think life is argument, life is back. Right. I think this argument that uh, that post pandemic nobody or people are going to be less less willing to go in public and all that. I think it's total garbage because you're already seeing. I mean, we're still in the midst of a pandemic, and you are seeing the demand. For people wanting to get out, wanting to get back to normal, so I, I really do think once, yeah, uh, you know, we can we can debate on when that will be, but uh, a vaccine and um, herd immunity, some combination of that and treatments. Once we get this thing under control, I think people are gonna they're gonna want to go back to well. Uh, as an example, life is normal. It's totally that's right because as an example here, the European Union borders are closed to outside Europe, but with, with but within Europe, you can travel. So the streets here are packed with Germans and Belgians and Italians and and even a month ago you you didn't see it but now when I walk home 
I hear 10 languages. I see, you know, boyfriend, girlfriend on the weekend vacation in Amsterdam, walk in, holding hand to hand, or the weekend vacation in front of the Heineken building. I mean, it's, it's the only thing that's missing is like the American travelers and the Asian travelers and all that. But people, as soon as they could start traveling again, they started. And, and you know, I think we're just going to live with it. I mean, you just nobody's going to hunker down. You know, Jeremy, so, so I'm in Texas now and we're obviously having some spikes, but there's some, uh, it's, it's really obvious here. You see, you see that people are truly social animals because yeah. the moment that we opened up, it was like, uh, and we're seeing it across the nation, but people want to be at the beaches. People want to be at the restaurants. People want to go out and see their friends. Absolutely. And, uh, right. and they really, you know, I, I'm an advocate for masks, but they, uh, they don't want to be wearing masks. So I think as soon as we get some vaccination, and that could even be a little later on this year, yep. uh, you're going to see people heading back out and really, um, really putting their money back into the economy. I think there's an interesting case study, like a lot of people brought up the Spanish flu comparison early on. And I think for some reason, a lot of people didn't sort of follow that up with, we had the roaring twenties after that, where people got right. so nuts, we had to ban alcohol because they were just partying too crazy. And like, <laughs> you know, I think there's a real risk that, I mean, you know, I think the, the micro of businesses basically always trumps the macro over some period of time. So I don't like mm -hmm. to pontificate too much about long-term stuff because in the end, nobody knows most people are wrong, but I think there's like a real risk that the market crashes upwards actually from some combination of people snapping back and the economy coming back much faster than people expected. I mean, we will for sure get a vaccine, for sure get effective treatment. Maybe that takes six months, maybe it takes 12 months, but in the context of, you know, doubling some large piece of capital, like 12 months is not that long in real right. life, right? Like the life of yeah, business, yeah, 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 yeah. You have to wait 12 months, that's totally fine or eight, even 18, whatever it is. But, you know, the market charged higher for years after the Spanish flu, like in an unprecedented yep. market. And today we have the same setup, but there's no other asset class on earth that's interesting outside of public equities, really, aside from- Yeah, right. That, that's and right, Sean. Nuts, real estate valuations are nuts, private equity valuations are nuts. They're the best businesses with the best management teams in the world trading in the public markets at valuations that are like half of their private market comparisons that are better businesses growing faster. I think right. there's like a real chance we're, we're either a heading into a renaissance for public equities or we get some inflationary pressures and it just crashes upwards also. Like all of us were talking about this the other day. What do you think are the odds that the S&P can trade at 25 times or 26 times earnings? I mean, in, in a world- about that probability, what would you say that probability? I mean, well, a zero interest rate environment. Right, zero interest rate environment. You have better quality businesses now that have more asset-like business models that can reinvest incremental capital at really good rates of return. With growth. You know, you, yeah, growing uh, while investing, you know, investing incremental capital, earning above their cost of capital, growing all the value creation uh, that you can get out of growth. You've got, uh, as you said, great management teams. Um, I mean, management quality has, has arguably gone up over the last 20 years. Mm -hmm. um, and you have, what, what's the tenure at right now? What's the 60 pips or something? Um, so it's, well, it's negative know, in Europe. Yeah. I, the, the, I think they could easily trade at those kind of multiples. And, and Jeremy, you've talked a lot about this. And the, the dumbest analysis that you see people do is they'll say, oh, well, the S&P is historically traded at this multiple, and therefore we're above it, and therefore stocks are expensive. Yeah. And Jeremy did a presentation at ValueX last year where he really looked inside the S&P and, and, and looked at how the constitution of the S&P has changed. And these are different, I mean, technology, and Jeremy, you know the numbers better than I do, but technology is a much larger percent 
of the S&P 500, say, and those are much higher quality businesses that should trade at higher multiples than the old industrial concerns of back in the day. You couple that with a lower, much lower interest rate environment. To me, that is not a crazy scenario at all. Right. What makes me excited is regardless of what you want to bet on in the market, there's something amazing to own. Even if you're a guy that can't pay more than five times earning for something, there's stuff for you to buy. I mean, right. there's a ton of companies that are down 30, 40, 50%, some 90% from their highs a year ago. So if that's your bag, you can do that. And, and that's great. If you're a tech guy, there's tons of amazing stuff. Not everything is overvalued. Not everything is up 200%. There's, there, there's incredible opportunities no matter where you look. There's something like 6,500 stocks just in the U.S. And, and we're at just this really interesting time where... It's just, it's just, it's, it's 31 flavors. It's whatever you, whatever you want, you can find. And I, I don't know how you could hunt for investing outside of the market at this point. Yeah. And you know, nobody has a crystal ball, right? So the macro is hard to predict, but if you sit back and just look at the opportunity cost of capital, uh, Sean, we were talking about this just a few weeks ago that, uh, that, you know, there's 5 trillion sitting in money market accounts at banks right now. And that is just so different than previous previous crisis. So in, think back to 2009, there was this, again, unprecedented stimulus package, which was, uh, you know, $700 billion that went to bank reserves. That's very different than what happened this time, which is 8 trillion, mostly in cash in terms of like PPP loans, unemployment, stimulus checks. And there's now 5 trillion sitting in money markets earning zero. So if we have right. Powell keeping rates low, and we have uh, sort of this fear of missing out and maybe a little bit of inflation, which I've been expecting for, for a few years now. So perhaps we do get a little inflation. There's gonna be this huge pressure to get that, those assets invested. Uh, you know, earning zero is not, not attractive if markets keep climbing. So again, Sean, I think there's, a, there's definitely a decent chance that we trade at higher multiples. I think a lot of times like, you know, like I said, I think business trumps the macro, but still, if you think about the incremental capital flows, what is, it, it is what is going to drive price direction? Like, what is the, the scenario that nobody is positioned for? Because that's the incremental direction capital will flow because nobody is there already. Right. And if you think about, and like when I think about it, everybody I know and I talk to outside of, you know, some of the gentlemen on this call are so bearish and so negative because there's so much, you know, uncertainty is how I hear it quoted over and over again. But if you think forward and think that there's a, a realistic chance the S&P could trade at 27 or 28 times earnings, you know, if, especially if it's growing rapidly because in an inflationary environment, companies with no assets, uh, you know, and reinvestment opportunity, are gonna, their growth is going to accelerate. You know, you could see the S&P double, I think, over a two or three year period, which would just shock people. No one is positioned for that. <laughs> That's yeah. for sure. Well, yeah. That could totally happen. Like, and, you know, Pick, pick your percentage probabilities. The S&P trades at 27, 28 times earnings on, you know, 210, 220 of ETS and, uh, you know, 2022 or something on a forward number. Like, and, and yeah, I don't think that that's as unlikely a scenario at all as the world seems to be portraying it as. And you're already seeing some moves in other asset classes indicating that that could happen. You're seeing gold rise to new highs. Like, why is it doing that? You know, I, I love it when people say things like, this just doesn't make sense. Because I think it indicates sometimes the market is stupid and it's doing something stupid. But a lot of times it means that there is something structurally secular happening that people don't understand and that it started and like they will begin to understand it over time 
but they haven't understood it so far. And so it means that it has room to, to run. There are so many examples of this. You know, I know it's a controversial topic among value investors, but I think Bitcoin could be an example of that, where people are like, it just doesn't make any sense. And you're like, well, you know, we can, we can talk about like what that means, but I think there's actually a there there possibly. And it might go to zero, and I don't know. There's a lot of outcomes for that, but there's something happening there, and people are saying it doesn't make sense, and it just keeps going. And like, I can see the, the equity market, a lot of people this year are saying it doesn't make sense. And I think in my mind, it makes perfect sense. And it, it indicates yeah. to me that there's probably a lot of, of legs to this that people are not prepared for. And the five well, trillion the, dollars sitting on the sidelines indicates they are not prepared for this. Right. Well, just to echo that, you know, when I hear people that are so bearish, whether when they start talking about an individual stock and they just say, oh, it trades for, they throw out some crazy number, like it trades for a thousand times earnings. And I go, <laughs> tell me one thing about that company. Tell me one thing about that company other than just a simple gap accounting screen that you read in a right. Wall Street Journal article or heard the narrative on somebody's talk show or whatever. Like, tell me one, tell me what, tell me what the revenue is. Tell me what the cash flow is. Tell me what the gross profit is. So, and so, and, and, and I'm okay with somebody, you know, with that debate around valuation or whatever, but generally what I hear from the bears is, is just macro stuff. So completely unrelated to the underlying business. They have no view. They, they don't understand the business. They have no, no, uh, no kind of opinion on where something's going because if it doesn't screen cheap, then they just can't be bothered with asking themselves, what is this thing worth? So, uh, you know, long-term. And I, I totally agree that you have to ask yourself, it's, first of all, it's okay that nobody agrees with you because that's the business we're in. That's supposedly what we're being paid to do is be contrarian investors. And right now, the most one of the most contrarian things is to actually dig down into a, a business and have a long-term high conviction idea that it's gonna continue growing. And, well, Jer um, uh, you know, yeah, I mean, well, Jeremy, do you think that that investor mindset, bear or not, this idea of uncertainty and, you know, maybe not being as optimistic as Sean is weighing down even your individual company analysis? So you're looking at that company that otherwise you're like, wow, this hits all my valuation metrics, this and that. And like, whereas Sean has been able to train his mind to say, hey, let's, let's think about the upside when everyone is saying everything's going to hell, you know, but now we're talking about that person who thinks everything's going to hell, but then they're looking at that individual company uh, valuation and just having a tough time to getting over that block of like, oh, there's just, but it's still just so uncertain. I mean, what do you guys think about that? Well, Buffett talked about this. He, he said there's never been a time in his 70 whatever years investing that, that hasn't been maximum uncertainty. So he says, you're always going to have extreme uncertainty. I mean, just in the few years we've run, the fund is now nine years old. Just in the period up and running the fund, we've dealt with, you know, double dip. So when, I, when Matt and I launched our separate funds on the same day, the big fear at the time was a double dip. Everybody was convinced we were going back into the recession and stocks were just going nuts in 2011. When we launched, happened to be great because the, somehow the clouds lifted and people thought, oh, I guess we're not going into double dip. Then it was the European financial crisis and Greece, and everybody was being prepared for all the for the for the Europe for the euro to come up, come apart. Everybody was going to go back to Europe. Brexit. You know, yep. right. Not only no, is you're going to go back to the drachma and the pesetta and the and the and the German mark, and banks were kind of preparing for this blow up of Europe and what that meant for the for Europe and or for the rest of the world. And so stocks were just and then it was then it was Obama getting elected, and the markets completely fell 
Loveland Park was a Democrat got elected. I mean, and then there was the debt ceiling. I don't know if you remember this. Like, remember there was uh, these financial professionals, CNN did, did something on these financial professionals that were spending Christmas and New Year's instead of with their family, they were paying close attention to the update on the debt ceiling. I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, that's how you, are you really that much of a slave to your job? Like, you give a shit about the debt ceiling debate? And with, I mean, that's kind of stuff that, that it, it, it it, yes, I guess we could all, there could be a nuclear disaster. We could all just die and, and everything goes to zero. Fine. But I'm not, those aren't the things I'm thinking about because if we all die, then we all die. So um, and, and there's been, we've been lived with so much uncertainty since just in the last nine years and it's right. only going to continue. So as a fund manager, your job in a way is to continuously deal with uncertainty because your investors are uncertain and the market's always, always gonna be uncertain. And a part of that, play, what plays into that is the fact that it's liquid. If you have illiquid assets, it's funny because if you go talk to private equity fund managers or real estate investors, they're not nearly as uncertain. They're not nearly as skittish because guess what? Their assets are private. They don't have that liquidity certain. They don't have the concern of people redemption, redeeming. They don't have market mark to market monthly, um, you know, the need to mark to market every month. And so they're all of a sudden they can take a longer term approach, the approach that we're supposed to be taking, which we do, but the uncertainty is, is more of a function. I see the uncertainty is more of a function of the liquidity of where stock prices are going in a day or a month than it is actual uncertainty. I don't think people believe we're all going to die and go to zero, but people are really more concerned about the short term pain of watching their account go up and down. And, and that's why people like real estate, right? Because it's stable. That's what you hear all the time. Oh, real estate is stable. I'd rather uh, own a, a building at a 4% cap rate in town than own an equity that I can buy at five times earnings. And the reason is because it doesn't go down in value. When I tell people, I'm like, yes, it does. You just don't see it. I mean, like if you that's had to go sell that asset today and the market is completely imploding and the S&P is limit down, guess what? If you're not seeing it, but there's... That asset's work less today than it was yesterday. But the thing that I've seen is that people, and this is a human, just, you know, it's part of our evolutionary heritage, but uh, recency bias is a very powerful thing. And it's why flood insurance, prices of flood insurance always goes up after a hundred year flood. Well, the probability of having a hundred year flood, just because one happened yesterday is, is, is still 1%, right? It's one in a hundred. But yet people extrapolate what just happened and they overestimate the probability that's going to happen again, and it, and it causes flood insurance to, or any kind of insurance after a big you know, disaster happens, the price of it goes up. Well, with the market, what we're seeing now, I think people, they can't get past the daily uh, virus updates, the death numbers, which are terrible, um, but they see all of this, and they're just extrapolating it forward, and they can't look through to the other side. And, and that's why you can find publicly traded equities. I mean, I know the market's rallied a bunch since the bottom, but, but there are still companies trading at fractions uh, of what their intrinsic yes. value is. Good businesses. I'm not talking dying businesses that are valuable. Yeah, yeah. I'm talking solid businesses. Mm -hmm. and, and people just don't want to touch them. It's too much uncertainty. What's, you know, and they turn on CNN or whatever the news are watching, and it's more negative news on the virus. And it's, you know, GDP numbers coming out this morning. It's, I mean, a terrible number, but... But I mean, it was expected and it just all gets extrapolated forward. And until that narrative changes, um, you're, you're going to see a lot of volatility, but it will change. And when it does, it will be the recovery narrative. The narrative will come out. It'll be five trillion of cash coming back to work, uh, people traveling again, uh, virus numbers down. I mean, we are going to get to that place. I don't know when it's going to be, but we're going to get there. And you want to own companies that are going to 
you know, the equity claims are still going to be intact and they're very, very cheap and they've got the liquidity and the financial wherewithal to make it across this economic desert that we're in. But when you own them, when we get to the other side, they're going to be worth multiples of, of what you're paying. I mean, we're investing in companies now that, I mean, almost our entire portfolio, we believe once we get a mean reversion, will at least be a double. Um, and, and so I, I think investors really need to look through what they're seeing today. Yeah, I agree. I think that actually like, and, and you other guys too, I'd be curious to get your thoughts on this. Like there are companies out there today that private equity managers would die to own in today's prices. Right. <laughs> yeah. A lot of these management teams just wouldn't work for these for private. Like you think Jeff Bezos would ever work for a PE shop? Not going to happen. So like or Daniel Eck. They're not going to go work for Blackstone. Yeah. yeah, they're not going to go work for, you know, some middle market PE shop or something like they just don't have to do that. So how do you, how do you guys like educate your LP? I mean, the, the famous stat that everybody that, that always blows my mind is that, you know, Peter Lynch had a 20 or 20% kegger and the average return for his LPs was zero because they top ticked the top and they bottom ticked the bottom and they, they, their behavior was so bad that they outweighed one of the best investment track records in history. So how do you guys, and Matt specifically, like, how do you set your capital base up? Or, or like, what do you do to work with your LPs to try and counteract that natural, I mean, this is a human instinct, the natural thing everybody does, you know, has this going on in their head all the time. And one of the things we get paid to do is to not, you know, is, is to be good analysts, but also be strong on the behavioral side. Like, how, how do you guys with your LPs to try and make sure that they maximize their own return and that their own behavioral biases don't shoot themselves in the foot? Such a good question, Sean. I mean, I agree. It's part of our fiduciary responsibility, I think, to help uh, educate our, our LPs. And the natural inclination, everyone knows you want to buy low, sell high, but, but surprisingly, and, you know, people sort of treat public markets, the liquidity of public markets as an advantage. Uh, yet we see time and time again that people uh, actually uh, create a disadvantage for themselves because the liquidity is available. And, um, and, you know, there's a trend or there's a tendency for people to treat equities like Giffen goods, where the more expensive they become, the more they want to buy. And then right. the cheaper they become, the more they want to sell. And it's absolutely backwards. So, you know, I spent a lot of time trying to educate my LPs and, uh, and you know, it's, it's relatively effective. But to Jeremy's earlier point, uh, the constant uncertainty has existed, but I do think right now, and this is why the opportunities are available right now, uh, right now, I think we have more uncertainty in almost anyone's life alive than they've ever experienced in their right. life. Uh, there is, you know, uncertainty on a social level. There's uncertainty um, on political levels. There's certainly uncertainty in the, you know, in dealing with the pandemic and economy. And, but this uncertainty will pass. And if you can look through the current crisis, uh, go out and it doesn't need to be far. I think we're going to have narratives, to your point, Jeff, we'll have narratives uh, that show up just in the headlines. I mean, I don't think people understand uh, on a, on a, global basis, Fauci was just doing an interview with Nate Silversite, 538.com, and he was basically explaining, yeah, he was basically explaining that uh, we're going to finesse this, this uh, vaccine, and we're going to start producing uh, tens of millions of doses, several companies are going to start producing tens of millions of doses 
of vaccines that have not been FDA approved. There's a big headline. Okay, so now we start producing vaccine. Then at the end of the year, when the FDA approves the vaccine, we'll already have doses ready, uh, you know, for probably, um, you know, certain, certain areas of the economy first or certain individuals first, and then, you know, 100 million into next year. So I try to educate people, Sean, and I try to, um, you know, talk them off a cliff if they get too emotional. But we certainly see emotions. Uh, it's, it's just human nature uh, to, to be fearful and, and there's a lot of behavioral biases in finance. But that's I mean, a great opportunity though, right? That's right. Yeah. I mean, Matthew, I think you brought up one of the best points is that this is for sure the most uncertainty I think any of us will ever experience on just so many different levels that like if you can just manage your emotions enough to get through it, then it could be very, very good for your bank account. If, if you're actively investing and looking at new ideas right now or yeah, compounding I, on ideas right. that you have conviction for. But at the same time, at the same time, there's companies that are really benefiting from this. And so what I've chosen to do in our fund is, I mean, most of our, our largest holdings are benefiting from this and they're growing faster as a result of trends that have been moved forward. And so, you know, there's two ways to look at it. You can either say, okay, I'm going to go buy the beat up kind of, you know, typical company that was growing at, you know, four or 5% a year. Now it's negative growth. And then bet that it returns to back to that three, four, 5% year growth, or you can buy companies that are just crushing it as a result of, of what's happened. And so as a public company investor, you get that opportunity to choose which side of the fence you want to be on. Were there any Kodak bag holders here? I mean, I missed the boat. <laughs> That's so, <laughs> a joke, man. I mean, well, should we? I mean, I mean, should we be looking at like GoPro? I mean, are they going to be uh, getting an eight hundred million dollar <laughs> loan to make some vaccines? I mean, who knows, right? You know, you know hey, you, look. Full disclosure, know, not a, full disclosure, not a shareholder in either. Yeah. So full disclosure, you guys know. Uh, I don't. I don't on this one. You guys are familiar with Lazy Day Holdings, the uh, the RV dealer. Yeah. So there was uh, at ValueX this year. I was. We were at one of the nights. Uh, late night at the bar and talking about ideas and uh, I, I can't remember the guy's name a really nice guy he was the Norwegian special ops guy oh yes yeah, yeah. yeah. so he was he, this is like January right he's pitching me on lazy day holdings and uh, it's an interesting story and so we were actually going to look at the warrants and uh, and you know we got we, we kind of briefly looked into it and we got on some other ideas and we just never really acted and go look at a stock price chart on that thing man I mean and really you know people are you know, they're never going to fly again. It's, it's, you know, go buy an RV and, and head off across the country. I mean, that stock has been a uh, huge, at least the stock price has been a huge beneficiary of, uh, of what's happened in the last year. Yeah. Years. What's that, what's that, that online wine seller in the UK that a bunch of value guys owned? I've seen it pop up in a ton of letters. It's up like multi-bagger status. It's just a little kind of shit bag wine reseller with no seeming competitive advantage that just right place, right time. It's so cheap. And now people are waving the flag. Like, see, I told you so. Um, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. Look, look what a five times earnings business can do for you. Right. But uh, they, you know, people are ordering wine online and, and they were, you know, they just, they did it. Yeah. I, I think it would have been hard to call that, but uh, without the pandemic, they wouldn't have, but uh, yeah, there, there's definitely some, some, typical business you know older kind i mean of down that, down here yeah. in, in microcap land it's it's i mean there's there's so many of these oh, that are that are just right. you would never think as a result of pandemic that are i mean you would after the fact you know maybe a week right. into the pandemic you'd be like wait this makes a lot of sense but yeah sorry sean 
No, I was just going to say, like, the uncertainty question is really interesting. Like, for sure, the uncertainty is higher. There's some additional risk premium that's necessary for that. But it, it, it's interesting to me that sometimes when you zoom out and you think longer, the uncertainty gets reduced, right? Like, like my precision on what any company is going to do over the next three months is, like, very low. But if you zoom out a year, two years or something, like, in some cases, your confidence can actually go up and the uncertainty, I think, is reduced. Like, like what would you, you all say the odds are here? that COVID gets resolved or that capitalism develops some solution? Because you do have like one of the biggest prizes in the history of capitalism mm -hmm. on a very right. problem and an unprecedented amount of intellectual and financial horsepower, mm -hmm. literally every scientific site in history. This is the most effort humanity has ever put forth towards something in history. So like, what, what, is the odd, what are the odds that this gets resolved in some very meaningful way over the next you know, 12 or 24 months or something like that from here. I mean, what would you all say the odds are that there's some- I, They're very high. Very high. The research possibility is extremely high. I mean, do you, guys remember the launch, do you guys remember the longitude problem when they couldn't solve, uh, this is way back in the day, there's a great book on this and they couldn't figure out a clock that would accurately keep time on ships so they could correctly figure out what their longitude was. So these clocks, when they'd get at sea and like the salt would get in them and like ships were getting lost, all kinds of stuff. And they wanted to get a clock that could keep good time at sea so they could measure the longitude. What did they do? They held a contest. And whoever could figure this thing out had a bunch of money. And lo and behold, once the incentive was there, the world puts its minds together and solved the problem. And that's just one example. But when humanity comes together and is properly incentivized, yes, it's 90% 90, 90 plus that we get this thing resolved in a meaningful way within 24 months. What you guys said the, the congressional hearings where they interviewed the CEOs of the of the companies that receive government funding that are working on it, and it was incredibly. They were all, for the exception of I think it was Merck or one one of them was saying that it was going to be kind of mid twenty twenty one, but the rest were really bullish on a short time frame. You know, these are you know companies going to congressional hearing publicly just stating, yeah, we're we've we we think we've got this, and I don't think you would see that. Um, I think it was what a week and a half ago or something. I mean, you can go on YouTube and 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 watch everybody watch the the hearings. I mean, it's there's no way that they would they would be that bullish all of them um, if we didn't have something in the works. And several of them, and I forgot the names of them. Several of them already have one, and there's some in Europe that have it. In Germany, they're already ma manufacturing it, just waiting for approval, which I was shocked to see. I mean, um, I'll flip the question, Sean. What, what, what do you guys think the probability is that in five years we're still sitting here in the exact same situation we are now? Nobody's really going anywhere. I yeah. think that's extraordinary. It's very close to. Oh, I hope not. Yeah, I hope. Incentives are still powerful, but I'll point out we don't actually need a hundred percent cure all either. So if right. we have like a seventy percent efficacy with a vaccine, or maybe even more importantly, we just get we just learn. How, and we, we are learning and we learn how to get the mortality rate down. Now it becomes like a very severe flu and, right. uh, and people can go back uh, to a much more normal state. So I, I, I think the 12 to 18 months that was originally stated in March um, is probably fairly accurate. And I, yep. think, uh, I think that we will be, there will be positive headlines that show, start showing up as the FDA approves vaccines as we start to have vaccines being developed, the incentives are so powerful. And uh, so we're gonna have multiple companies, probably multiple vaccines. And I think in 2021, what that will lead to as people go out and either take their 5 trillion and start putting it either into the uh, economic system or they start investing it, 
it basically means that we will have earning surprises to the upside. I don't want to be too macro here, but I think people are so bearish that the surprise is going to happen on the upside and that will continue to drive prices. Absolutely. And, and you know, there's a middle ground here too, because I think doesn't get discussed a lot, which is just people with or without a vaccine, people are going to live and move forward regardless. And nobody's wanting to talk about that, but, but most people are not privileged enough to, to shelter in place. That is the most developed world, you know, 1% uh, of, the, of the world or less can even, have, can even fathom that luxury. Most people, I mean, you know, we have an investment in Brazil, a large investment in Brazil, a large part of our fund is in Brazil. And, um, you know, just talking with people and listening to reports about people on the ground floor, they don't have the, they don't have money to sit at home and do nothing. So they just move forward. Right. Yeah, people die. That's just the way it is. But they're still going to move forward. They're still going to go out and buy pizza. They're still going to go out and buy this. They're still going to operate. And they're not going to zero. So there's this interesting dynamic in the market where people price in this kind of extreme outcomes. But instead, it's, it's very probabilistic that you could have something just in the middle. And even if there isn't a full availability of the vaccine to everybody, it, people are not sitting home doing nothing. Um, and so... As a public company investor, again, you get the opportunity to invest in companies that are able to continue growing. Um, and there's, there's, there are people, people are not, again, just they're just not going to sit at home and, and do nothing. People are moving forward. And we see that here um, as well. And I know Europe is a lot different than you know, an emerging market or something. But people are not just going to sit at home and, 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 just, and just wither away and die. I think especially in some of these countries, it's been fascinating to watch Brazil go through. I, I also have invested in a company that's, that's there in, in size. And I mean, loan volumes have been growing. Like, it's actually been really instructive to watch this. And I was talking to a friend of mine that owns a big uh, investment in some frontier markets. Um, and he was like, look, like, you, you can't trivialize even one death. So that's not anything I would ever try and suggest that I'm doing. But COVID relative to some of the challenges some of these countries face historically and in the future, like, you know, in Africa, where you've got HIV infection rates of 20% plus, Ebola, you've right. got, like, you know, I mean, even just malaria or like, um, you know, some of the other things that we vaccinate for in developed countries that are just not caught on there that are fatal. Like, these are just, COVID is just not as serious a disease as some of the other challenges that they were facing six months ago, a year ago, two years ago, that they will face in the future as well. And so... Some of these economies like hit a big speed bump, obviously, like the rest of the world while everything stops and have just come roaring back because one, the people don't have the wealth to sit at home. And two, this just isn't as bad as the other diseases. I mean, malaria, um, just not as bad as some of the other diseases they're all facing. So it's, it's going to be interesting. And I, I wonder if sometimes the world is making, you know, as investors, some, some of the world is making it harder on themselves than they need to be. Because if you just zoom out two years, and you can find stuff that's going to go up two or 10x from here whenever this is resolved. Like maybe that's the easiest trade in the world is to just take that view and to just step back and be like, look, at some point capitalism will fix this in 24 months yep. and right. stuff is going to go up to 10x, you know, under any, under any sort of middle of the road scenario. And then you get a free look on the, the really nuclear roaring 20s upside scenario possibility, which you don't have to underwrite in order to own this stuff. Yeah. And it's, it's really interesting to see people become so short-term focused where they're trying to guess if the deaths are up this month or down this month yeah, right. versus, you know, in 12 months, this is going to be fixed because 
Yeah, yeah let's, and let's be clear that it's going to be volatile. Okay, this is not, it's not like things yeah, yeah, move yeah. in a straight line. That's, that's what you get paid to do is sit there in the face of volatility and uncertainty uh, with your conviction on these firms that can go up to five, 10 X. Uh, so I expect yeah, yeah. that uh, many of our holdings, our portfolio will be extremely volatile. We, we, have, we have firms that move up and down by 20, 30, 50% in you know, a, a series of weeks. But over the long term, uh, when all this uncertainty passes, uh, again, I think we'll be sitting in a place where we have a number of our firms will be up uh, three to five X from here. And then things look very attractive. So if I could pose one, oh, sorry, Matt, I didn't mean Go to Go ahead, Robert. Go no, on. no, no, you wanna finish that thought? It's fine. Okay, well, I, cause I wanna ask, you know, I'm gonna throw this question right back at you. Okay, so um, I wanna ask everybody their thoughts, you know, now just from, uh, from your own investing strategy and philosophy perspective in the last, you know, what, uh, I guess five months, four months, you know, what are some things that you've seen either within the, your own holdings or maybe some companies that have been on your watch list that have either caused you to change your perspective on the, Hey, I'm going to load up more or take a starter position, or, you know what, I'm going to start selling off a little bit because of some of the things that they did. You know, what, what are some of the things that you've seen some of your portfolio companies do Matthew? Do you well, one thing that's really fascinating. Uh, so, so part of our strategy is that we'll use um, short put contracts. I call it structured value. We'll use short put contracts as a tool to enter into equity positions. And um, over the last, uh, you know, 50 years, we've seen the VIX, which is the fear index, basically spike into about the 40 range five times. And in March, the VIX went to 85. It broke all historical records. So basically people are uh, so afraid right now and what happens when the VIX rises, uh, and that's basically reflection of volatility, is it's basically increasing the premiums that are available for basically selling these contracts that we use to enter the position. So when the VIX rises and equity prices fall, and we're looking and doing bottom-up security analysis, it is an extraordinary time to put capital to work through these products. And so through this entire process, every single month, we've been writing these contracts buying securities, finding opportunities, and putting money to work. I let everybody jump yeah. in. Yeah, so I mean, in a lot of our companies, I have been super impressed uh, with how well management's been able to adapt their cost structures. And just, and, and to be honest, like, like we're, we're going through earnings season right now, and every, every one of our companies that's reported has surprised me on multiple fronts. I mean, revenue, start the top line have not been hit as badly as I feared. Um, cost control has been very impressive. Uh, liquidity has not been, been an issue. I've been really impressed about how they've been able to manage their uh, cash flow. And it, it, you know, it's given me just, in the companies that we own, um, just uh, a tremendous amount of confidence in the management team's abilities, ability to adapt. And if they can get through April, May, June, with everything still going pretty well, um, then I, I think this is the worst of it, right? And so, I mean, we own, we own um, a, a small um, uh, shopping center uh, anchored REIT uh, that, that has a lot of uh, uh, properties throughout the, the South and the Southeast. 
And I think in June, I mean, they collected, I want to say it was uh, 72% of the rents. I was super impressed mm -hmm. by that. Mm -hmm. And, and I'm like, you know, and, 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 and the securities, we own some preferred stock and we own actually a little bit of their common, which we're trading at such huge discounts. It's like, look, if, 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 if April, uh, or actually I'm taking it back in April, they collected 72% of the rents. If April did not kill this company, um, then I am super confident. I mean, the management team adapted, they brought costs out. It's just given me a lot of confidence that, uh, the companies that we own are going to be, be fine and get through this. And so, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah. So in, uh, well, maybe in February, um, when things started looking like, you know, this could be an issue when, when the, when it started, um, I had a, we had a, so we only have a handful of positions or super concentrated. So when I say we sold something, it's kind of a big, bigger deal than maybe a manager that has 30 or 40 positions. Um, had a large position in a, in XPO logistics and had for, for a long time. It's one of our, we love Brad Jacobs. We love what they've done. Um, and decided to take long-term capital gains on that realized that and, and, because we just, I wasn't sure how how this pandemic, if it if it became, or how, at the time it was just, you know, it was isolated in China. If it grew globally, um, how it would affect the global logistics business? And this is one of the largest global logistics companies in the world. Um, and um, and late March redeployed that, um, just basically back into the the portfolio into companies that are growing at the expense of you know, the old guard. Um, and just organically on their own because of a new demand for their for their products or their services that are kind of unleashing you know the the potential in the new economy. So sold something, uh, sold XPO, and and um, actually added to um, our two largest positions, which are Spotify and Roku. And um, um, you know, in the in the case of Roku, which means six in Japanese, so maybe it's appropriate for the sixth uh, your sixth episode here. Um, it wasn't necessarily about, you know, there's, there's just people sitting at home watching more TV. It wasn't that at all. It's just that, that COVID, for example, has unleashed the, the, what's happening in ad tech and the technology um, and the ability to deliver ads over streaming and, and you know, specifically in television. It's just, it's just growing so fast. And this is the market leader, which only has, has less than two at the time, had less than 2% of the total um, market share of, of ad revenue. Um, which almost half of ad revenue in the U.S. was still in traditional media. So what's the chance that, you know, the market leader in streaming television, um, so not mobile television, but television at home, um, not, you know, not, not mobile, but, but television, um, what's the chance that they're going to, you know, be able to gain more than 2% of, of the pie? Um, and so um, a company like Roku uh, has also has the, the ability um, and the opportunity to reinvest 100% of their gross margin back in the business. And they have the cash flow, the free cash flow there to be able to do so um, to, to grow their business. And so looking out over you know, a three or five year period, it just felt more interesting to invest, reinvest the capital from XPO and our two largest holdings, Spotify and Roku, than it was just to sit and watch XPO have in stock price, and then hope for a mean reversion over the next two years. It's just, it just made more sense to concentrate more on, on our best ideas. Um, even though all three of those companies have what I would call some of the very, very best management just on the planet. Um, all sort of somewhat founder or are founder controlled. 
uh, large insider ownerships and, and um, obviously very different businesses. So a company like XPO, logistics, hard assets, uh, it's just going to be much, much more difficult for them to recover um, and then get back to where they were and then start growing again um, versus a company like Spotify and Roku that have been able to accelerate their growth as a result of COVID. Absolutely. So I think, Sean? I think about, I think there's like three categories of this that are really, really fascinating to me. I think the first thing that I think about is, you know, Amazon traded at like a dollar a share in 97 on a split adjusted basis. And it would be really fascinating to go back and try and figure out who held it throughout that whole period where it had years that it was flat and it had more 50% drawdowns than you can count. And it went up 3000 times. Like that first letter that Bezos wrote is amazing. And I don't think it's that hard to think that had you read that letter in 97, you would have said, this is an inspired leader who is on an amazing mission. Like recently I've been going back and watching some of the, the original job presentations when he came back to, uh, when he came back to Apple and that traded for a net net valuation at one point. And those presentations are incredible by any measure, by any person. They are some of the like best. See, if I saw a CEO who presented like that today, I would buy that stock at any price basically as an amazing leader. And so I just think that how many people bought it and doubled their money and then sold it and felt really smart and then watched it go up another 2,900 times. Like most people probably. And so I think that, that that's something I think about a lot. I think that on the competitive side, it's really interesting that like something like my local burrito shop is bankrupt and will never come back. And Chipotle's digital sales are growing 100% year over year and will put their physical sales soon. And, you know, in a lot of ways, there are companies that are benefiting from this massively as this has played out and that has surprised me and when this bounces back they will take all of that market share and then some as well and then lastly i think there's there's a lot of really interesting businesses that are seeing like really non-linear structural improvements to their businesses that have real permanence where they you know their their businesses that, that we own that are in technology that were growing 50 percent year over year before this that are now growing 150 percent year over year and their businesses where scale and network effects matter and so you just have like structural non-linear improvements to these businesses happening today. And I think it's really hard. I, I certainly struggle with it. Like thinking in these non-linear second order consequence type effects where you've got these permanent structural improvements. And if, if you even have a small edge on somebody and you just iterate that over and over and over again, eventually all of their, you know, you just get all of their lunch. Like you just right. have to iterate that over and over. So if you're, structural advantage in a permanent way is, is widened versus your competitors. And then you play this game where your competitor loses and then they die. And then you take the business and then you do that over and over and over again. Like, I think the, a lot of people are starting to get hung up on valuation or stocks are up a lot and maybe not understanding that there's been like non-linear improvements in these businesses. You think about what's the proper valuation you can pay for a business growing 200% year over year and have some runway to continue to do it in that for some time. And if it's run by a visionary leader that has a really amazing business already established and has an amazing vision for where they're trying to go, it's just a massive opportunity to, to make the business into a much bigger thing. Like these are very special opportunities and special times to be an investor. We should be sort of proud for the opportunity to invest right now. Absolutely. And just yeah. one closing, just to follow up on that real quick, Sean, it was, that was great. And I, and I think um, I, that's, that's our job as investors is to look at the future and not the past. I mean, I can't imagine 
uh, one of Buffett's original investors saying, yeah, Mr. Buffett, we're paying you to invest in the past. You know, nobody, nobody got rich investing in the past. So, uh, so many people say, oh, how do you know? How can you tell? How, do you, how can you tell it's the next Jeff Bezos? No, it doesn't have to be the next Jeff Bezos, but our job is to look at the future and not the past and not be subject to what we were talking about earlier, which is extrapolating the past into the future because that's how you get, that's, that's when things go wrong. And in order to stand out, you need to have a view on the future and not the past. So um, it is our job to try to figure that out and, and understand that. So um, yeah, I appreciate that comment. All right, so we are there. Let's, let's get everybody's final thoughts and then also where everybody can go and find you, uh, both your website and uh, if you have a social media account or Twitter account, you know, or uh, something like that where people can go follow you. So uh, uh, let's go Jeff and then we'll go uh, counterclockwise. Yeah, okay, so my final thoughts um, is I'm probably of the group here, probably the most more traditional value looking for cheap stuff, although we don't extrapolate the past. We need to understand our businesses to make sure they can thrive in the future. But um, I, I would argue that, that value investing historically, we know that it's worked very well. We also know that traditional statistical value has been very poorly over the last 10 years. But I would say, you know, you need two things to happen for the traditional value to work. You need very cheap valuations and you need mean reverting situations. In the last 10 years, we have not had that. We've had valuations, even on the cheap stuff, have been elevated. And you had more than your statistical share of non-mean reverting situations in the sense that businesses, to Jeremy's point, that are just being permanently disrupted, that are dying, that you know, the bed, bath, and beyonds of the world. With COVID, we have seen since March, uh, given just the, I mean, this is a virus that is, is bringing up our, our most instinctual survival instincts. I said that right. Um, and, and people are, are rightly scared of what the future will look like. And that you take that mentality and you overlay it onto pricing uh, risk and assets and you get a lot of inefficiencies, a lot of mispricing. And I think today in a lot of names, we're seeing very, very cheap valuations. I mean, companies trading, uh, you know, their market cap is maybe two or three times um, their levered free cash flow, crazy valuations. So you're getting cheap valuations, and I think you're getting a lot of mean reverting situations. So companies that are good businesses that are not being permanently disrupted, that you can buy at very attractive valuations. And so I would encourage people, if you have a value, more value-oriented uh, bent, to, uh, to, to take a look at these businesses and, and really try to understand um, what the future is going to look like for them. That is crucial. But uh, I think it's a fantastic time, whether you're a growth investor, a traditional value investor, um, to look through all of this and, uh, and take advantage of the opportunities being presented. Very cool. Uh, uh, Jeremy? Yeah, so, um, uh, I'd just Wait, like to real say- Wait, yeah, yeah, Jeremy, yeah. hold on. Real, Jeff, yeah. where can people, what's your website? Where can oh, people- Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Sorry, sorry, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's uh, Thorpe Abbott's Capital, um, uh, T-H-O-R-P-E-A-B-B-O-T-S, capital.com. And uh, a lot of information on there uh, on our kind of behavioral approach. And uh, we have an info at Thorpe Abbott's Capital that you can send uh, an email to. And I'd be happy to, uh, to talk to anybody that's, uh, that's interested to carry on the conversation. Cool. Jeremy? Yeah. And uh, our website is jdpcap.com. Um, you can sign up for the, our quarterly updates. I started doing a, a video Q&A. Uh, last quarter, it was very well received. We're going to continue doing that. So um, if, if you've signed up for the updates, uh, that'll allow you to ask a question for the next, uh, about the next quarter. So um, yeah, jdpcap.com. Um, and I guess final thoughts, you know, of, 
over the, over the last nine years that I've been doing this, there's only a very small handful of people that I consider real peers and being a real peer and somebody that I, people I really trust, I really admire. And it's these guys, the guys on this show, um, you know, every year we get together and when we met, we, we just knew it was just, uh, I guess, I, I think we time. just, we just met. So, so, let, so you throw the other. Yeah, yeah, okay, okay, yeah, 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 yeah exactly. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to, yeah, I don't so want anybody to think the, you know. I, yeah, no, no. <laughs> okay, okay, yeah. So, so these guys, it, it, I think anybody would, if, if they had the opportunity to invest in, in, with any of these guys, um, uh, I just, it's, it's just, they're special guys, and and I uh, love the way they think, and we all, we all invest slightly differently, but um, they're they're guys that I really, really admire. So um, everybody, check out their websites and hopefully ours as well. But, um, and yeah, last thoughts. I couldn't be more excited about the future. It is a really, really special time. And like I said earlier, it is a unique time where you can kind of, it's, it's a choose your own adventure out of the market, whether you, you like, you know, companies that are statistically cheap, whether you're, whether you're, you like growth companies, whatever you like, there's something for everybody and there's just great opportunity, um, across the board. So, really excited about being a public company investor. That has spoken like a true father to be in a very short amount of time. So I, I appreciate <laughs> I, uh, that's very, very good. All right, Sean, let's go to you. I don't have social media and I'm not trying to be found, but if anyone wants to find me, I would love to, you know, grab coffee once this uh, COVID thing wears out, I guess. But yeah, I would second what Jeremy said. I've been doing this quite, you know, my entire professional life and I think these are some of the best investors in the world on this on this group right now, and and yeah, I just think that there's going to be some billionaires made out of the groups on here, and uh, and yeah, thanks for the thanks for the time, Robert. It's fun to hang out with you guys, and and yeah, I think some of my best most formative investment conversations have been with this group over my life, and I'm appreciative for that. That's awesome. Hey, your lips to God's ears. Let's get some billion, you know, hey, let's all become billionaires. Then we can, then we can go wherever we, we there we can go to wherever we want, whenever we That's want, right? right? That's right. <laughs> if I could, if I could just, uh, before you go, Matt, um, you know, I met these guys uh, a couple of years back through, uh, through ValueX and, uh, and they were kind enough to invite me uh, this year to go to Prague with them. And uh, it was a blast of a trip. And uh, they, you know, they, they've all run funds and started funds before I started mine. And they been so generous in, in their advice and, and helping me with questions on everything from LPs to to fund structure and uh, I, I couldn't be happier to call these guys my friends and they're amazing investors uh, and I, you will do extraordinarily well with these guys uh, and I, I, I couldn't be happier that uh, they kind of brought me into their circle so thanks guys. You all have top one percent track records too by the way you guys have all been doing this for a long time it's not it's not speculation about the future. Your performance over your careers has all been exceptional. Thank you. You too. <laughs> all right, closing thoughts here. Uh, so, so uh, again, I echo, how could I not echo everything these guys are saying? Uh, obviously, uh, you know, some of my closest friends and, and exceptional investors. Uh, we can be found at petersonfunds.com and there's a whole lot of resources available there on the website. Uh, I think, for maybe the audience here, it's, it, I think one of the most valuable takeaways from this is to remember to not let your behavioral biases get in the way. So we're all sort of saying how uh, this is a great opportunity and it sounds really simple, but it's actually not easy. Uh, you need to dig around and find the right companies, but then you need to be able to have the conviction uh, to stay the course. And there's gonna be 
the narrative right now is so bearish and that's what presents the opportunity but there's going to be volatility and there's going to even be volatility in that narrative so we will have uh, positive headlines and negative headlines and there will be scares and setbacks but uh, to be able to put capital to work today I think will uh, you know people will be very very successful if they're able to to make that decision um, and have conviction uh, in that in that choice. Hey, look, as long as the four of you can lower your minimums for participation, hey, I'll spread it around. All right, let's go. You know, but uh, <laughs> but with that, guys, thank you so much for joining us today. This was a, so much fun. I, I can't wait to have you all back on at some point or, and also doing individual uh, uh, podcast interviews as well. So um, again, this has been the Investors Roundtable, episode six. There's a lot that happened on this show today. We Everything from earthquakes to just awesome conversations. So uh, I invite you all to uh, check us out at youtube.com slash SNNWire. Uh, that's where you'll be able to see every single new episode that we publish on Friday morning. And um, yeah, with that, thank you all. Stay safe. Good luck. Talk see you, soon. Robert. Thanks. Thank, thank, you, you, Robert. thank you, Robert.